Hey, this is Rob Turner, and Seth and I are very pleased to announce the partnership of Ben & Jerry's and Osiris. And at a very exciting time in the history of Ben & Jerry's, because they have collaborated with the Waterwheel Foundation for a limited flavor. It's ice cream, a caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. Mm. Mm. Not only can you get the ice cream, but you also can get a very limited t-shirt, which like the packaging, was done by Jim Pollock. You guys have heard of Jim Pollock. Some of the greatest fish artwork ever is Jim Pollock stuff. So if you'd like to buy this ice cream or any of these t-shirts, for yourself or for that fish fan who has everything, go to store.benjerry.com. By the way, if you use the promo code OSIRIS, that's O-S-I-R-I-S, then you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. Get on your shoes, get out the door. Let that sunshine fall in Take a little walk out on the shore. Cause it's a big bad world we go home It's a big bad world we go home Sometimes a river Sometimes a rain Sometimes there's a whistle of the evening train Sometimes a mountain Sometimes the sea They're gonna get you back the way I wanna be listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. So excited about this one. I'm so excited. This is my little baby. This is my, this is my idea and Seth made it happen. We wanted to take members of Leftover Salmon and members of String Dusters, members of String Dusters we hadn't yet talked with. We're down to one. We have one left we need to and that's Jeremy and we will get him. Jeremy who did sit in with uh, Leftover. That, that was Birdie. That was not Seth. But we sat in the inside the tabernacle and uh, did an interview. Tabernacles in a Atlanta historic venue, and the bands were performing on a tour here. Yes, it was an well, actually, not a, even a tour. A tour. It was a yeah, it was a one-off. Yeah, it was one-off. a one-off with Horseshoes and Hand Grenades as well, who drove all the way down from Wisconsin like that day, and had to and barely made it in time. Um, wonderful Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, and they had guests too. Uh, Andy came out. Andy Thorne, who we spoke with, who was part of our, who was one of the two members of Leftover. That we got to uh, talk to. He sat in with him and Vince sat in with him. And then Drew ended up sitting in with uh, the String Dusters as well. It was a wonderful show. But getting back to the interview, we got to, we sat down. Go ahead, Seth. No, no, I'm listening to you. You just, I'm just waiting for you to drop dead because like you didn't take a breath. You're like so excited. I mean, you really came into this interview pretty excited now. Are you still excited? Because Uh, he's breathing. I'm definitely excited, but... um, uh, humbled as well because this is tricky to do the multi-band interviews. This is a, a little thing that we've started to, to try to do. Um, we were with uh, Travis Book. Oh man, he's a cool dude, by the way. Yeah. yeah well, I'm glad that was. Never mind. But yes, I'm he glad was, he chose a, to do with that. that was he's great. a cool dude. And Andy Hall and Dobro, uh, Travis Book, who's who's the upright bassist, and um, and Andy Thorne of Leftover Salmon. And but, we've been talking about Andy Thorne on several different episodes, including the Burl episode, which you still haven't given me. We have but, it right there in the... Yeah, in a CD. So, folks, he can't put... Oh, my God. I'm not the engineer. So, yes. Um, 
Uh, we didn't have a, an engineer for this, this. This was a wonderful uh, interview. And then on this day in the show, Colonel was in the air all night. And then it became obvious toward the end of the night when everybody sat in with everybody. And Jeff Mosier, a friend of the show, came. And, and uh, there's a nice Jam Base article on it if you, want, if you want a little more information, if you want some videos. But um, they did Working on a Building, which was a staple of the Colonel sets, and they did Little Georgia Rose, which it, it, even though Working on the Building tugged at my heartstrings because of the Colonel thing, the Little Georgia Rose was outstanding. And while you're looking that up, I just want to take a brief mention and thank uh, Polay Clark, our uh, oh, financial yes. accounting firm here in Atlanta. And by the way, I, I say Atlanta, but they're national, and they work with people all over, all bands from all over the country, sometimes even the world. But And they care. They're not afraid to tell you the hard truths, you know, that... You know, don't spend your money here so you can have your money there. That sort of thing. Because they really care. They do care. So, Pole Clark, thank you guys. And also, uh, Osiris Podcast Network. If you haven't checked out the other Osiris podcast, Rob. Yes, we'll be talking about the Amigos podcast, one of the new podcasts at the end of this episode. And we're going to start doing that about... Uh, we already have talked up a lot of other episodes. We're going to do more elaborate, um, shining a light on some of the other podcasts. I'm so proud that there's so many great podcasts on this network. And, and if you want to learn more about them, of course, go to OsirisPod.com. But I um, can't emphasize enough. This was yeah. such a great show. Oh, the, back to the show, the yes. Ba- the band put me in a great spot on the left side, but I ended up uh, during Salmon Set moving around the whole balcony. And uh, right. Your dog's not coming back into my house ever again. I know. Again. She's being she's not behaving like as well as she used to. It's just, you know what it is? It's that you, you're, like, you're like the guy that like would take her in like a purse. Like, that's you now. You're the, like, your dog. Yeah. <laughs> Like you are that guy. If you ever see, you know, and then next thing you know, you're gonna start getting like haircuts, like a poodle. You're gonna look like a fucking poodle. <laughs> and when Seth's right, he's right sometimes. Uh, Down in the Hollow, by the way, is the song that Drew Emmett sat in for the Stream Dusters on. You need to check that out on that jam bass piece. I just, I want to emphasize, this was such a special night. And then we had a little cosmic moment because for some reason, and I, I wasn't even drinking. I, you know, I was a sober guy that night because I had to drive back to Woodstock because I still, for a little bit longer, you weren't drinking yet. No, but here's the point. But I needed my license to pick up the tickets. So So I think because I wasn't drinking, I never noticed that somehow they had flipped out and some security guy found the license, okay? Where was your license? Oh, oh, you're not like he you found didn't it like on the parking lot or something. Weird. That's weird. So it wasn't yeah. like uh No. And it was and I didn't notice because I didn't need my my ID again for the rest of the night. All right, I I was sure that Rob got so drunk and I no, didn't talk to him about this. No. I was sure you're because the, you're the big drinker. <laughs> How was David Byrne last night, Seth? Do you remember any night? Yeah, actually, you do. I can show you some of the photos Ursna took. Well, we'll talk more <laughs> about that after as well. We saw David Byrne at the Tabernacle. I saw Amazing! New, I saw Neil Young at the Cap Theater. We'll talk about that as well. But what were we just talking about before that? How great the Leftover Salmon Show was for you, Rob. Oh, no, because Jeff Mosier was talking about... You were talking about the moment of your our, ID. No, our interview at the Fox. That he, This is at night backstage. This is backstage right. after the show. Jeff Mosier's talking to one of the members of Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. The Reverend Jeff Mosier. The Reverend Jeff Mosier, friend of the show, very close associate with Colonel Bruce Hampton. Mm-hmm. Was played with for the Aquarian Rescue Unit. And... Yes, and uh, the Blue Ground Undergrass and the Ear of Reverence. And, uh, stop doing that hand wave thing, man. That's obnoxious. Stop it. <laughs> so go on. Throws me off. I know. This is amazing. <laughs> this is so easy. Worst wingman. <laughs> so you're backstage talking. No, I wasn't there. I was already on the way home and I didn't get this text because I was driving home. But, but Mosier, I guess, started texting me because he's talking to this guy about our interview. And then a security guy, while he's talking about it, comes up and says, do you know this guy? And, and presents my license to Mosier. 
And that's when his hair just went bing. And that just is another example of the colonel was in the air. And we'll hear another one maybe from Seth after this interview. But that's on that. So I want to preface, though, this interview. Yeah. Uh, we're backstage at the Tabernacle. It's such a great spot to do interviews. It's just they got this nice little... They have several rooms, but one of these rooms we've kind of done most of our interviews in. Oh, can I say? And they're, they're all sitting there with their instruments. And, and I give Seth a lot of hell, but, but he couldn't get the equipment straight. And I really actually felt really bad for you because you have four seriously world-class musicians sitting in front of you. And we're all just waiting... And I just, you know, you worked it out, you figured it out. And, and and also, while you were figuring it out, I was getting treated to a little jam session, yeah, yeah. a little private jam session. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that was, it was very cool. That, it was very cool these guys did this because a lot of, that, try it, guys. Go out and ask two band members of a band to sit down with two band members of another band and, and to do something like that. But the, these guys, their camaraderie, are, it's, it's at such an all-time high level. and uh, Even so, it's still a very nice gesture. It's trusting us. It's trusting the other musicians. It's excellent. It's something higher. Mm-hmm. It's truly something higher. Which, by the way, is the name of Leftover Salmon's new CD. Look at you, Rob. Thank you. I'll be here all the week. Let's cut over the interview. We are backstage at the Tabernacle, and not only are we blessed to have Andy Hall and Travis Book from the infamous String Dusters and Andy Thorne and Drew Emmett of Leftover Salmon, but we're at kind of a key time for each band. Leftover Salmon has just released uh, Something Higher, correct, Uh, produced by uh, Steve Berlin, and it has inspired you guys back on the road, uh, over 100 gigs a, a, a year, which you haven't really done in a long time. 
And Infamous String Dusters <clears throat> went back to basics, self-produced uh, uh, laws of gravity, organically recorded, and won a Grammy for it. Which Woo! is so let's start with string dusters. It can happen to anyone. It really could. <laughs> but you're self-producing your next record? Already did. It's already done. We just approved the master last night, so it'll be out in January. Awesome. And that's got to, I mean, winning a Grammy's got to inspire you to, to follow the same procedure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it definitely makes you feel like you want to keep releasing music. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, no pressure, I mean, no pressure. Well, you know, it's like, you know, we've all been doing this a long time, and, and the fans always appreciate it, but it's, you know, it's hard to get, uh, you know, maybe the industry or whatever to, to recognize your music, you know, which is, because there's a lot of good stuff out there, so... When you do get a little bit of recognition, it definitely, it's just, uh, yeah, it gives you a spark. It makes you want to write songs and record and and make more music. So, yeah, we've got a new record coming out, and, uh, and yeah, we just hope to improve, you know, improve on the last one. And plus, I love that you're shining a light on Leftover Salmon, who was clearly an influence on your ethos, much like uh, Newgrass Revival and the Flectones and that sort of thing. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for Leftover Salmon, that's for sure. Give us, give us an example of something like when you were a young player, some of the ways they influenced you. I mean, I'm sure seeing them was a trip. I know it was for me. Well, yeah, I think in, in sort of a larger sense, Salmon was part of a wave of, of bands that kind of, you know, ripped, ripped a new hole in the, in the universe, you know, and, and opened up um, this sort of chasm to, to, for, for people to sort of settle into to, to this this music, and when I say this music, I'm speaking in a really l- broad sense of just anything that's sort of derivative of, of um, you know, I, I guess I guess bluegrass, but really sort of like t- true Americana. You know, Salmon Salmon has always been a band that has really um, you know drawn from like all American art forms. You know, you find it all in there, and that. Early on, that really resonated with me as a you know long-haired, stoned-out, washed-out kid in Durango. I I was like I, I stumbled upon on on this music and Salmon specifically, and was like like wow, this like it's it's all right there. Like everything you could want is right there. And you know, so speaking for me personally, I was really I was inspired watching. Drew and Vince do their thing. It sort of made me believe that anything was possible if you just, if you just played your instrument and kept your ears wide open and and didn't stop. You and know? if you kept swimming upstream, yeah, totally. Yeah, salmoning, <laughs> as they call it. Um, so that's sort of put put sort of simply that that you know it. We wouldn't be here. That is to say that we, you know, we would we would still be here and playing music, but it it wouldn't be the same in this context if it weren't for, um, you know, for Salmon and 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 I know there's a lot of other bands that could speak, probably say the same thing. Speaking of doing whatever you want, you guys left over has has some horns, a little R and B feel, not as much Cajun as in the past, and a little more R and B feel. Whose idea was that? Was that Steve Berlin to bring the, in the horns on yeah. something higher? Well, after we recorded it. I was just kind of playing around with the idea, and I said to Steve, hey, could you maybe get a horn section on this song? He's like, done. And so he obviously has all the horn connections, you know, being a horn player himself, and he put the 
the horn parts together and whammo and uh, it's, it's so cool to hear it on that tune and we've gotten to play it live a few times with, with horns and it's really really fun. The last time was at the String Summit this year uh, we did a funk set it was really fun we closed out the main stage Saturday night with a funk set nice quote-unquote, quasi. With Steve Berlin, though, um, was that your first time working with him, or has that been done a bunch? We're <laughs> right. having fun with the microphone. Mr. Microphone. Right. Hang on a second, you got a phone call. <laughs> the so, purple uh, phone. Working yeah. with Steve Berlin, though, is this your first time in the studio with him? No, it's our... Th- Third. Third, okay. Yeah. And yeah. he's very hands-on, right? Very. And he can be very. blunt. Like, you bring a lot of... Do you bring more songs than you know you're going to record, knowing that he's there's certain ones he's just not going to... Less. <laughs> oh, really? Less. Go ahead, Andy. We, we probably usually bring less songs than we're going to record. <laughs> Which, honestly, that's a really good thing to do because it lets you collaborate together in the studio... And there was some of that on Something Higher, and some of those are the coolest tracks. Like Winter's Gone? Winter's Gone was actually one that we already played as a band. So that one was just an easy one to throw on there. But Southern Bell, we had never played together at all. It was just a song Vince thought possibly might go on there. And we totally worked it out in the studio, and that's probably my favorite track on there. And that's a cover, is it not? That's a cover of one of Vince's friends' tunes. It's the only cover on the record. But it, yeah, if you come in without so much material, it allows you to like create material together, which is kind of fun. And where were you? Were you recording? Because the, 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 the location can really influence how the record comes out. Big time. Uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, Wave Lab Studios, which is where Calexico and Devochka record. And uh, it, it's an analog to digital studio. So we went to tape first, which was really great yes. for the for the warmth. Well, you make it clearer, thing. your love for analog on the record. There's the analog song that talks all about that, yeah. <laughs> that well, the other track. thing was, there's a ton of keyboards there. So our keyboard player, Eric Deutsch, was way psyched about recording there. There's like a wall of keyboards. And he, a huge I think he might have used keyboards. everyone. He did. <laughs> he was standing on chairs playing keyboards up like 10 feet tall. <laughs> And then on your recording break, you're, you just go out to Saguaro National Park and trip out in the desert for an hour and go back inspired. It's pretty perfect. I just yeah. picture Steve Berlin running around the desert trying to wrangle you guys. <laughs> so he's only been a permanent member for a couple of years, right? Yes, true. The keyboard player. Yeah, he's, he's the newbie. Eric Deutsch. Sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of the location having an influence on recording, we got to talk about this house. Pandolfi and uh, Falco were on, were on with our, our Osiris thing, and he told us about this house in King of Prussia that the String Dusters recorded at. <clears throat> T- tell us your experience at this house and what were some of the strange things that happened to you, and, and how might the record be informed by that experience? Well, yeah, that's a good question. When we uh, get ready to record, a lot of times, you know, if we have a few days off on the road, we'll get like an Airbnb somewhere. Um, you know, we try to make it maybe a naturally beautiful place or somewhere out in the country or the woods. And so we'll rent an Airbnb and work on music, just, uh, you know, acoustic. For us, it's since we have everything's acoustic, we can just sit in chairs and, and pretty much do what we do. And, um, yeah, we rented this Airbnb in Pennsylvania somewhere. <clears throat> it's hard to tell when you look at the website, like, exactly what's going on with some of these houses. And we show up. It's late at night. And Andy Falco is the first one there, and he st- calls us, and he's like, guys, I am, 
I've left the house. I went in, I got in, and I was too scared, and I've left. And I'm driving around until you guys get here because I'm freaked out. <laughs> so he we're like, oh, great, good start. Yeah, so we're like, okay, we'll be there. So, so he literally drove around for like 90 minutes in the woods of Pennsylvania feeling safer than actually staying in this house by himself. So when we get in, it's definitely, it's like, there's like, it's gothic, it's all stone, and... The first thing you see when you walk in the front door is this 12-foot-tall, like, marble statue of, like, I think, uh, like, an angel or something. I can't remember what it was, but that that's, like, right in the middle of the living room with, like, lights shining on it in the dark. And that's, like, sort of the main feature you see. And then you begin to walk around this house, and it's just bizarre. It's like a castle. There's, there's, there's just strange stuff everywhere. Of course, I somehow ended up sleeping in the dungeon downstairs. And, uh, yeah, it was vibey. And then, we, you know, the next day when the sun comes up and we weren't as scared, we kind of got into it a little bit. But the thing that you would notice is you'd lay down when the house got quiet at night. Everyone goes to bed, the house gets quiet, and you just hear this, start to hear the scratching. It's just scratching. And then pitter-pattering. And then we learn that there's literally raccoon, like families of raccoons all in the walls just having a field day all night long. So, But, uh, you know, during the day, it ended up being a really interesting and cool, unique place. You know, a lot of times these places, you know, they have big vaulted ceilings, and it sounds amazing. So, you know, playing in this place, yeah, exactly. There's some creepy things on the walls in here, too. Uh, it's following us. That's got nothing um, on that giant angel statue. What's well, so with this yeah. giant angel statue? Did you take a close look at its nails? Was it like the nails filed? Because I'm wondering, maybe it was the angels, you know, statue scratching and not the raccoons uh, that they said. I, yeah, I don't know. I, there was, we, we had company, whether it was the raccoons or the, the spirits or whatever, but we were not alone in that place. But, uh, but like I said, it sounded amazing. And during the day, it was just like so interesting and fun. And so we got in line with the vibe there and had a great time and finished getting all of our material together for the record. And for us, when we record, it's definitely... You know, like Andy Thorne was saying, it is really nice to be able to go in without everything pre-planned. But for us, for some reason, it works better the other way to kind of have a really good idea as far as how the songs are going to go. Just because for us, it can be hard to sometimes make decisions in the moment. It takes us a while to come to resolutions about things that we differ on, you know. So it's better for us to do that outside of the studio when you're not as pressed for time. And uh, so we, we had most of the things organized, and we even um, decided what order the songs were going to be in before we even went into the studio with the idea of having songs kind of blend together. So we, we put the song, we figured out all the songs we were going to record in advance, put them in, figured out the order, and then began to make musical pieces that would blend some of them together that we could then record like so Chris hinted at that in our last interview he didn't really want to because you want to it's your way of giving it, well, an element of what you do live into the studio without having 20 minute improvisational excursions yeah exactly so it's like it's like planned improvisation you, you, we, we did some tests to see what would work what songs might blend together um, and then kind of created these you know musical passages or different things that would connect songs but still left you know, an open place for improvisation and, and whatnot. And we so. recorded it all chronologically. So the, the yeah. record really, just like a, a good session, the record kind of picks up momentum as it goes along, you know, instead of a lot of times, I think if you track everything separate and you just got a bunch of songs, then you order them. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you're the, the, the energy really peaks toward the front 
or even the middle of the record, and then you kind of get some stragglers there at the end. But for us, I think in part because by the time we got to you know by the time we got to the end of the record, we were just firing on all cylinders, and so tracks that ended up at the end that we maybe thought initially might not be as strong as others, kind of are are carrying this incredible gravity that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have. So that and it, it took a lot of pressure off deciding, you know. You know, you're not you're not three days into the session, and we haven't touched on a song that you really like, and you're wondering, is this song going to get done, or or there's a song that maybe is particularly hard for you to play, and you don't know when it's going to come up, and so you know you don't know if you're going to be warm or not. But everybody knew exactly sort of how everything was going to lay out, and it 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 lowered the the pressure factor on the whole session, which is always good for us because, like Andy says, you know, as a five way democracy with a bunch of independent thinkers, it can get um it can you know it can get it can get Intense. I wouldn't say contentious. No, I I was trying to sort of choose my words wisely. It can be very tense or intense. Um, Always, we're all, we all want the same thing and we all want what's best for everybody. But getting to the truth of the matter can take a little bit of time and a little bit of energy. And so to not be expending that energy on that kind of bullshit when all you really need to be doing is focusing on on the music and the love in, in real time was really sort of revolutionary for us. But then again, some artists thrive on being in the moment. Even Vetter uh, and Pearl, with Pearl Jam, Vitology, a lot of those songs were written like off the cuff. On oh, the- man, we're only speaking from our own experience. Right, right. We're like, not at all advocating for any other band sure. doing it this way. We just found that it was really it was really useful for us in this context to be able to do it that way. It was but very you guys, fun. You, you, with Leftover, I'm talking to, to Drew and the, the other Andy now. Uh, do you think your recording was fueled by the more than last minute? It's almost a study in contrast, the two. Approaches. It, it was it, because uh, it was spontaneous, and these songs had an energy in the studio that they may not have had had we been playing them for a while. Right. And we were going through this this whole process together, discovering what the songs would be, you know, and not really knowing. I mean, uh, really, we had pretty much written or started these songs about two, maybe three months before we started recording. And so when we got in the studio, it was like sort of like an experiment. It's like, okay, well, we don't know what's going to happen, um, but it's exciting. And, and I think that the album kind of reflects that. Granted, a year later, uh, we're playing these songs a lot better. And it would be nice to go back and record the album now that we actually know the songs. But that's, that's, the, that's how it goes. That is how it goes. That's just, that's just what happens making a record. And that's kind of the joy of, of writing brand new songs and recording them and then you know, watching them develop it, you know, in the live experience. But yeah, I think that for us, it was really exciting. And, and um, I think it was exciting for Steve Berlin, too, because he was you know big-time part of that process with us. So. And just having someone like Steve Berlin minimize, um, you know, battles between, not battles, but disagreements that... that Absolutely. You just send it to Steve if, if yeah. you disagree on how something should go. Is it his call, ultimately? Or the songwriters? It, was, it just came yeah. naturally. It wasn't yeah. even... We're yeah, all fairly nice. mellow with, like, decision-making. It's... Nobody's yeah has a super hard decision. The song lets you know what it wants. Yeah, we've we, kind of learned as a band, I think, to flow with each other pretty well. I mean, we've always gotten gotten along really well as a band, but I think more and more. I mean, we've been playing together almost thirty years, and I think that well, especially Vince and I, and I think we've learned which battles to pick and which ones to to let go. Now, you know? take a take for example your new keyboardist. He's coming into the studio, and, and you said there's this like 
huge array of, t- of tools at its disposal there. Um, how open are you to taking his direction? And, you know, I mean, again, you've been in the band for 30 years. Very. Eric had a lot to do with uh, the direction of this record. And uh, one tune uh, that I wrote, Places, he, uh, he came up with a whole part for it, which really transformed the whole song. And to the point where I gave him a credit on the song because uh, it, it just really made the song what it is. And he just had really great ideas, uh, arrangement ideas and textural ideas that really, really brought just so much to this record. And uh, it, wouldn't, it would not be the, the record that it is without what he did. So, mm-hmm. Well, Travis, Book, and Andy Thorne are linked going way back. So we're going to get into and that. If, but if, if you uh, want to do a little trivia here, Rob, this is where we would go ahead and say... The name of that band? What is the name of the individual... Yes. From Colorado, that is the glue behind that. You can go ahead and press your buzzer when you're ready. I don't know. Is there a right answer? I don't know the answer. Benny Burl. Burl. Benny Galloway. But before Benny Galloway. Hey! Hey. One point for the duster. But I want to talk to Andy real quick first, though, because I know, Andy (laughs) Hall, you met Chris Pandolfi and Chris Eldridge in Boston at Berkeley, but I don't know where you grew up or what was before that. And yeah. he says he does all the research. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find... Where did you grow it's up, man? mysterious. It really is. Yeah. I grew up in the wilds of uh, upstate New York. and uh, <laughs> But yeah, you know, I, I grew up playing in the jazz band in, in my high school in Binghamton. Playing. I was a guitar player originally and uh, got accepted to Berklee College of Music as a guitar player. Thinking you were going to play jazz. Yeah, jazz, rock, whatever, uh, metal. I played. I was into metal and blues and rock and and uh, and and when I got to Berkeley, because of the practice regimen that's kind of demanded of you, I developed pretty bad tendonitis mm. in in one of my hands and and uh, and I was playing some slide guitar and I realized I, I sort of noticed that the slide using the slide didn't aggravate that injury and so I. And it was so bad that I basically had to quit playing guitar, so I had to kind of refocus my whole thing while I was at Berkeley on, in kind of a new way. So I took everything that I had learned as far as practice and diligence and everything and just refocused it onto the dobro. Um, but yeah, I graduated from Berkeley, was in a band after Berkeley, this like bluegrass swing band in Boston. I left to go to Nashville to try and pursue music. And when I came back for a visit, Chris Pandolfi had basically replaced me in that band and we had never met. So I went to go see my old band and see who this new member was. And it was Chris Pandolfi and Chris Eldridge happened to be there as well, just hanging out. We all met, and literally that weekend, uh, we decided to, we had access to a studio. We met, we were buddies, you know, quick friends. We had a few beers and decided we would record that weekend, the weekend we met. Um, And so we did. We, like, met and then literally went to record just for fun the next day in the studio we had access to. Um, and, and did you record the songs that, like from your old band so that it's just easy? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we just made up some new stuff. We did some bluegrass, a couple original tunes. We did a Tom Petty tune, you know. It's just like whatever everyone knew, we just kind of threw it together. And that was kind of, you know. And, and so we took that. And when it got mixed, I was like, oh, this sounds really cool and unique. And we, you know, decided we wanted to do a band. So then, you know, Chris and... and and uh, Chris, Chris moved to Nashville, and anyway, there's there's more to it than that, but that was sort of the humble beginning. So there's one side of it, 
And then we also have North Carolina now. And that was where John Stickley told us about you actually gave him a David... I'm, I'm talking to Andy Thorne right now. You gave him a David Grisman CD and changed his life, essentially, right? And you're in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill. <laughs> True yeah, we were, uh, <laughs> Such a legacy. Uh, we were all... Uh, <laughs> John Stickley and I... I was actually better friends with Jeff Stickley way back then in middle school. And uh, we all ended up taking from the same guitar teacher. And Jeff and I were playing some banjo and guitar at the open mic nights in Chapel Hill. Every Tuesday night, we would go to Skylight Exchange and do that. And we needed a mandolin player, so John was taking guitar lessons. And I had a mandolin, and I said, hey, John, you should learn how to play this. You could play mandolin with me and Jeff. We can have a little bluegrass band. Here's a David Grisman tab book for tone poems. And uh, he had learned, like, the whole thing in a week, and he could play really, really well. It was insane. So we started... It it was insane. I mean, it really was. And he was a punk rock drummer at that point who played in a band called Strunken White that actually had a bunch of club gigs around town. And so, he like, his versatility was just crazy. And and then when he heard tone poems, he heard the Tony Rice flat picking, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of a whole nother realm of his talent but yes and weren't you the one who encouraged him at some point to go back to guitar yeah he was doing equal amounts of guitar and mandolin all through high school he played mandolin in our high school band and his brother played guitar but then we joined a little band in college called the big fat gap which was a bunch of guys that went to unc chapel hill and uh he played guitar in that because we already had a mando player and then Anders Beck is the one who encourages you to go out to Colorado, and that's how you, you guys meet, right? Well, we just we went out to Colorado. I went out with two guys that, uh, I went to high, that I knew from Chapel Hill High that I played lacrosse with, Rick Hawkman and Jed Willis. And we drove all the way to Durango, 32 hours in the car without stopping, wow. to, go on, to go skiing. Because our friend, our friend from Chapel Hill was working at Durango Ski Resort. And the uh, first thing we did when we get to town was go in Canyon Music, and there was a guy working at the desk there, and that was Anders. So we became friends with him. We're like, hey, you got any pot? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah. He was like, Pulls yeah. it out of your ear. <laughs> it's the jam man basement full. <laughs> no, and so he's like, hey, we should jam while you guys are in town. And I got this bass player buddy. That was this guy. So, I mean, Travis showed us around the mountain for three days, and we just skied and played every night. And by the end of that week, I was just dead set on coming back out there for the summer. Now, Travis, at this point, had Ronnie Bowman committee, was that already in something you were involved in? I was never in that band. You weren't? Nope. That was Jeremy and Andy Hall. Oh okay. I was I lived I lived in I lived in Colorado. The only gig I had in Nashville ever was the was the String Dusters. Can I mean, you tell me? Can you tell me at that time you played with Neil Young uh, in his band? Yeah, right. <laughs> Didn't weren't you a member of Led Zeppelin? Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Did you named John Paul Book. Yeah, I was. No, I just I I lived in Durango and I was um, you know working a golf course and 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 being a ski bomb and then. And then, you know, these North Carolina cats showed up. And, and you know, when Anders heard them, he could hear them before he could see them. And, you know, we were on the bluegrass scene, and we were learning how to play bluegrass with other, you know, like middle-aged Colorado guys. But, you know, no, you, I mean, you, you, when you're from North Carolina, you just have it in a way that when you're from Colorado, you don't, you know. And it was immediately apparent to us that... Um, 
not only were these guys uh, super cool, but they were there was a lot that they could show us about the music. So we we you know begged the, begged them to come out and and start a band. So we did that for for a few summers. You know, the, Thorne was still in in college and having to go back to UNC. And when he when when they would go back in the wintertime, we Anders and I'd play a duo gig or we would play a trio with Burl or we'd just kind of do whatever else. But that was we were sort of always waiting for Andy to come back. So that we could really get down to business. And how was Benny Burl an influence on you other, other ways? Like songwriting for yeah, or, or he, cooking. Yeah. Well, he did <laughs> teach hunting. us he did teach us a lot about, about cutting meat and about uh, about barbecue, but uh, primarily his 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 influence was, was was songwriting. There was a period of time where I'd get together with him every Wednesday. We had another friend We'd go up to his house in the woods, and, and his wife would scare us out of the house, so we'd go up into this little apartment over his garage, and, and the idea was one guy would bring a bag of weed, and another guy would bring a bottle of whiskey, and someone else would bring a 12-pack, but everybody had to show up with some song ideas. Um, you couldn't show up with, 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 it, with, with an empty hand, and what that meant was I'd spend the weeks you know, cutting grass on the, on the golf course and, and working out tune ideas in my head, and it became, because there was a pressure to show up every week and show something new to Burl. And also it was a context in which he was welcoming the two of us to help him develop his song ideas almost as an equal, which we certainly weren't, but that was the culture he'd sort of curated. It really, it really taught me about the value of consistency and about how, you know, the more you write, the more you write and the easier it gets. And the more those ideas start coming, then the more that come. And uh, learned a lot about refining ideas and learned a lot about when recognizing the good shit you know you're spitting lines out and recognizing when the good thing comes out and burl taught me a lot about using the eraser and taught me yeah. about how how to how to how to or organize things on paper you know he oh would God. he went through a whole phase where he would his paper thing he would he would you know he would cut out this line and he would paste it down here he wouldn't rewrite <laughs> things he would and his song would become this long like three page long thing that he would sort of unfurl and you could see the whole development of it right there on the page um, so you know the songwriting influence was 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 really where Burl um, you know he 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 was into talking to us a little bit about the the music and the arrangement, but it was really the songwriting where he was the greatest influence. And I want to go to Drew from that because you you like me, you've been around for a while, and in the '90s the the trad jam band thing was cool, and there was a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of <clears throat> things we can point to for why it's blown up. Well, brother, we're out there, Steve Martin playing with Old Crow, but don't you think there's more of an emphasis on songwriting, and don't you think that that kind of spreads opens the net wider, and that more people who kind of maybe thumb their nose at jam at the jam band world of, of just jamming that are maybe more receptive because they're such a strength of the song. Was that your question or your answer? <laughs> Go ahead. I think you answered it. <laughs> you agree? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when you think about a good band, when you think about a memorable band, you think about songs. And those are the bands, you know, I think the number one song probably, number one band that comes to everybody's mind about songs is the Grateful Dead, probably. In this culture especially. Think about those songs. Those songs, they'll live forever. It's like Mozart. It's, it's like, um, it's the crux of the whole thing. And you can be the best band in the world. You can be the mo have the most ripping guitar player, keyboard player, drummer, whatever. If you don't have memorable songs, people aren't going to walk out of there going, wow, that, you know, I really got something from that experience. I can remember these words or I can remember this one hook. To me, I mean, it's, it's all about the songs. And going back to Benny, I mean, Benny has taught all of us so much 
about songwriting. He helped me write uh, one of my whole entire solo records, uh, Long Road. We wrote a lot of that record together. And uh, some of, I feel like some of my best songs I've written with Benny. But um, like you said, I mean, it's, it's I've probably changing a lot of people's minds about the jam band movement. You know, because a lot of times, like, oh yeah, jam bands—they just play the same song for for an hour or whatever. But I think a lot of that's changing with with uh, everybody's really getting in the you know the songwriting pool. And I, you know, Green Sky is another great example. Sure. You know, uh, some of their songs are are really memorable, and and that's what grabs people. And it elevates know? the genre when people are putting Absolutely. out stuff of Absolutely. a certain quality. And, and the dusters, you know, exactly. for sure. I mean, all of us are—we're all learning together how to create um, a sound or how to create a, you know, a mood or a, a, you know, a putting ideas into music. I mean, it's, it's really where it's at. It's, it's and, well, and, in the, and in this genre, though, that you, that you guys are in, it's, um, look, I mean, there's a lot of music festivals, lots of music festivals, but something about this scene, uh, it's like the same bands playing the same festival. You got Strings and Soul, then you've got the Vegas thing, and then you've got the Mountain one, and then you you've got you know now Green Sky's got thrown. You guys used to do Festy. I mean, it's all it's the it's like you know the similar space. So to me, hearing what you're talking about and you know the, this collaboration and this and and the songwriting and being able to do these things like these these workshops you're talking about, I I wonder like when you get together in those environments, are you also workshopping and is that a place where you're you're putting the, you're still putting those tools to you know to use there? You know, I think there is some of that for sure. I mean, I think it comes you know the the sort of learning from each other, collaborating comes very much in the moment when we're at those festivals. You know, we're it's not necessarily like we're making time to sit down and write songs together per se, but we're cultivating just relationships. Just we're hanging, you know, we're jam we're definitely playing with each other on stage and we're getting inspired. It's like the the thing that I love is like see a bit you know we play with sam and it's like they're just crushing it and it's like wow we have to get with it here this is awesome it's like it's you know it's it rattles the cage and it keeps you on your toes and it keeps you and you hear their new songs and like oh it's so cool it's so inspiring and it makes you want to write and so that's you know that's what i enjoy about the the sort of seeing you know a lot of the similar bands it's at the festivals uh, you know there there are friends and they're everyone sounds so good and i feel like we you know encourage each other in that way it's like you know not even competition but it's just like you just you hear someone do so well and you want to do well and you get inspired and and it's a and it's cyclical and and it's and it's really healthy and it's really fun and uh, i always look forward to those festivals because i know I'm going to see amazing music and get inspired and feel like I really have to bring my A game. And, and so that's that's fun and enjoyable. And then when there's a lull in the festivals, you guys go ahead and do a show like this at the Tabernacle. Where you bring not just two, but three great bands together. Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, it's not just at the festival. If we can we can have a little bit of that mojo here at a place like a Tabernacle, you know, at a club or a, a theater, you know, it's 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 awesome. And and. Uh, so yeah, and and I think the fans enjoy seeing that, and they get the cool thing is the fans, uh, they see that, they see us collaborating, they see us having fun, they see us, you know, posting about each other, and it's it's it makes for a really cool, um, deep community of fans as well, which is cool. The third band Seth alluded to is Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, by the way. Yes, indeed. And I should also point out that um, the Dusters not only have Laws of Gravity, they also have a live version of that record, which has a killer Black Elk on it. And volume two of their undercover series, which also, which is covers, 
My Money Jacket, The Cure, Jessica by the Almonds, which I think you did the last time you were here. Yeah. Marvin Gaye and Daft Punk even. Yeah, exactly. And if I can just interject something, speaking of horses and hand grenades, we started our own record label recently and the first release we we put out on it was horseshoes and hand grenades new record the ode so you know that's another way that we're trying to help cultivate this community is by you know we've started this label and we're what's called it's called tape time records and we're putting out another record soon from a band called meadow mountain a sort of a an up-and-coming bluegrass band from colorado so it's kind of a way for us to you know help continue to cultivate this this sort of community of of roots music but uh, but yeah we've you know and uh, we've done a lot of stuff over the years including yeah these undercover records which are which have been fun what's the grape nuts mystery walk us through that oh boy nope nope not gonna go there uh yeah it remains a mystery uh, you know i just the grape nuts mystery is something <laughs> that we prefer not to discuss it's <laughs> Wow. It's a mystery. It's a mystery is what the is main a thing. Nut? That's the mystery to what me. What is a grape nut? It's well, grape nor a nut. I yeah. think it's a like nut it. that's grape. What? Grape. It's a grape nut. Let me, I'll you just, enjoy the, it, the one thing I will say is, listen, I, you know, I don't mean to bash any cereal particularly, but grape nuts is rough. Great. I mean, you, 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 you put the milk on it. You can't, it's like eating pe- hard pebbles. And then you have about... 20 seconds where it's the right consistency and then it's just a soggy mush. Right. You know like, you know what that you know what that, that is though. Huh? Do you have a kid? I, I don't. So my son's five and he's got a loose tooth. And it's been yeah. loose for about two weeks. So I've been thinking about getting grape nuts because he'll eat it. It will take it the tooth right out of his mouth. Yeah. And it'll be soft and, you know, kind of like soothing. I think that's what it's for. I, it, it's Recommended either, by it's dental hygienists. It's for children losing US. teeth or for old men who, you know, can't shit. I don't <laughs> the know. Same thing. It's the same thing. Is there a difference between an old man and a, and a young and a child? Regardless, for all the bands listening out there, when you're on tour, skip the, skip the grape nuts. You know, do you, just why do you have it on your rider Cheerios then? Or something fun. Yeah. It's on your rider though. Captain Crunch. Is it? I, I don't know. It, I don't no, need a rider. <laughs> it probably is. I mean, we are getting older. Seriously. Shots of Metamucil it's, for everybody right after this interview. It's tough out there. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough in the toilet. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I notice also your, your rider has, um, has Pepto, and uh, wah, you, before you wah. go on stage, you're taking uh, the um, Tums and. No, Prilosec. we're not. We're not that old. All right, yeah, yeah, that's not at all. It's 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 all you know. So we still party, It's all hookers bro. and face drugs, dude. As soon as we're rock got, stars, man. As soon as Come you on. got Grammy, as soon as you got a Grammy, you're like, up. Oh, time for the Prilosec. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, man. I'm 24. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but wanna, we digress. <laughs> clearly, I do want to shift back to Annie Thorne. And before I do so, I also want to point out that leftover put out an album called 25 which was 25 live songs in honor of their 25th anniversary all recorded in 2013 2014 and it is a cooking cooking live record tony trishka said of andy oh, yeah. thorne i've had the pleasure of playing with andy on a couple of occasions and he drives it the way it should be driven his single string playing cuts a wide swath of excitement across one's brain oh yeah that is a very old quote that's from my first solo record and this is the guy who, who taught bela fleck and bela fleck is your mentor, but at some point, did you have to stop listening to these guys for your own personality to come out? Not necessarily. <laughs> no. I mean, every you know, if you're a banjo player, you have to learn almost everything those guys have done. And growing up in North Carolina, I was so lucky that there were all these workshops in Raleigh all the time. I got to go to like Bella Fleck workshops 
which when you're a teenager, that is incredible. And be in a workshop with 20 other people with Bella Fleck or Tony Trishka or Bill Keith. But like creating, I didn't really learn banjo from a banjo teacher. So I think I had my own style right away because of that. I never learned the right way to play. <laughs> so do you think that helped you when learning Leftover? Like part of Leftover was joining them. It probably wasn't just learning the songs, but learning the ethos behind the improv, right? Uh, absolutely. And by the way, thanks to Chris Pandolfi for getting me with Drew 10 years ago. Never would have made that connection otherwise. So, And that was the, kind of the lineage I wanted to talk about a little bit, too, is, uh, you know, um, Matt Flinner was playing in my band, and then he, he decided uh, that he wanted to stay home and do other stuff, and so he recommended Chris Pandolfi. And, and so Chris just kind of came out and, and joined the band just on Matt Flinner's recommendation. He's like, yeah, this guy's great. I'm like, okay, fine. Get, get him a plane ticket. <laughs> and, uh, and he came out and, and uh, started playing with me, and then later on uh, the Emmett Nershey Band. And then these guys were starting up, and so Chris was like, well, we're starting this new band, The String Dusters, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to leave. And uh, I was really disappointed because I loved playing with, with Chris. And um, he said, but there's this guy, Andy Thorne. So uh, he told me about Andy, and um, I heard, I guess, a couple recordings, and then called Andy up, and, and same thing, liked him and hired him over the phone. And he flew out and joined the Emmett Nursery Band. And then um, he was working out so well with that band that when Salmon got back together, he came and sat in. And Vince was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's have Andy in the band. So, so yeah, another intertwining uh, relationship with, with the String Dusters and Salmon. It's, it's pretty cool. And I already so, loved Salmon at that. I mean, I grew up loving Salmon hated since I've him. been in high school. So... I saw him uh, many times in North Carolina at the Cradle and Merle Fest and traveled to Ziggy's to see him. Oh, Ziggy's, yeah. Yeah, Salmon at Ziggy's well, was the good shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's, on, that, on that note also, I just have to say, I, when, I, when the Dusters were starting and, you know, we had all sort of grew up listening to jam bands, but our experience as bluegrass musicians was more in traditional bluegrass where you might take a solo for like 20 seconds and then you're done. And that's it. It's a very short little thing. And when we started hanging out with Salmon and sitting in with them, <laughs> it was like you'd, you'd, you'd play once around and you'd think you were done and Drew would just look at you like, you're not, <laughs> even, you're not started, even close, bro. bro. Keep going. <laughs> and you'd start picking some more and you'd think, God, it's got to be it. And then you'd look at Drew and he'd just be smiling at you. All right, digging some more. <laughs> and, but that was very real in it. And it, it, it musically, it's, it's, it's funny, but it, it's true. It takes Drew and Sam and really taught us how to develop like a long musical passage that is meaningful over time and that can move a crowd and that was something that we totally learned from from leftover salmon that took years to develop really i mean and it's you know it was glad i was glad we had some mentoring in that because uh because it's it's so fun it's a different way to approach even a solo that's you know salmon had helped develop was like not just do a little picking and you're done, but like this way to like create a whole mini song, a mini little sonnet within a within a song, you know, that that you can affect a crowd with, and that is musically really cool that you you don't see in a lot of other types of music, maybe jazz or classical or something, you know. But I wanted to end on this. Oh, you had something you wanted to say, Rob? Well, I wanted uh, two general questions, and I wanted to give Travis an opportunity to talk about bluegrass bikes and beers. That's you, right? It- 
Yeah, at one point, but you know, then I had a, I had a, I had a family, and I, I for a little while, I, I, I wanted to ride my bike, right? But I, ha- I had a family, and I didn't have any money, and so I thought maybe if I book some gigs where I ride my bike and raise some money for some trails, then I can kind of have my cake and eat it too. But then I finally realized that all I really wanted to do was just play music and then go home and ride my bike. So, um, you know, without mixing the two up. So uh, I just decided to lower my overhead and ride my bike more. But I, for a little while, I was, I was doing a little thing where I was raising some money for bike trails and going out and riding and playing solo shows. And that was fun. But now, cool I, just, now I just kind of keep it all separate. All right, the first general question that I'll ask all four of you to answer, first of two, and then we'll play. Or you'll play. I'll, I'll just sing. We'll play. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, your nightmare or crazy gig memory. For you, it might be the anti-neo-Nazi rally in Germany. Um, that one didn't bother me too much. The worst one for me was when we were just starting out, and I was trying to help get the band some gigs, probably our first year. And we had this... Um, we had like a house concert up in D.C. in the afternoon for a rich guy, but then we didn't know what to do with, with, with the evening, and so I somehow landed us a gig at this random club called Staccato, and it was one of these things where we showed up, and there was already a band on, and then we went to get on the stage. There were six people in the band at the time, but there was only room enough for three people to be at the front, so we lined up in two lines, and we played for about 45 minutes for like three people, and the gig was so bad that we just left without asking about getting paid at the end. And I still haven't lived it down. I mean... Not only that, we never spoke to one person that worked there. Ever. Yeah. Wow. We walked in with our instruments. The band, the right a band quit playing. We walked on stage. There was like a little PA mixer on the side. We set up all the mics, kind of adjusted the sound, played the show. In two lines. Fi- in two lines, finished the show, and left. And, and never once spoke to anyone that worked there. You ever Didn't dr- take any money. I still get shit. Do, for this. It did, we just we played a whole gig without one time making contact so like, with anybody. That was my nightmare gig. So like you guys are on the bus or a van or whatever you're traveling now. Oh, it like, was a van. But no, like now, like now you're like oh. pa- you're on the bus and you're passing that town. You're like, do you think we should stop by and see if we can collect on that? Yeah, occasionally the guys will remind me. We called it, you know the place is called Staccato, but we called it Steak Taco, and I hear about it on a regular basis. Well deserved. <laughs> Andy, what what tell tell us about your nightmare? Yes, Andy Thorne. You've never had a bad gig. <laughs> I know I'm racking my brain on a bad gig here. Come on, you grew up in North I Carolina. Have you must have had one. <laughs> oh well, some of these, some of these uh, big fat gap gigs we used to play. That was that was a little local bluegrass band in North Carolina. We would play absolutely any gig. So frat parties were sort of our main bread and butter, and that's fairly traumatic yeah. to look back <laughs> on. Carolina frat parties pre football game. Oh yeah, we bluegrass freebird. It was it was terrible. And that's what, that's what we made a living on for three, four years there. But to me, any nightmare gig is when I'm having technical difficulties, really, because plugging in a banjo, it took me a couple years to even figure out how to do it slightly well, and I still don't like the way my banjo sounds plugged in or any that I ever hear. So <laughs> I, just don't, I don't think a banjo sounds good plugged in. Um, so I sort of hate my life is what it comes down to. <laughs> But your pickup can malfunction in so many ways when you're uh-huh. a banjo player. You're like constantly taking the resonator off and putting foam in or a t-shirt or a towel, depending on how loud the gig's going to be, well, how you know, loud the room is. You just got to go to the drummer and ask them how they do their snare, right? It's no gotta... problem for that to get loud. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could put a microphone on this snare banjo head and have it work, but uh, somehow it doesn't pan out like that. Drew? 
So many. So, so, so many to choose from, from, from <laughs> back in the day. Um, the one that jumps out at me, I think, is Topeka, Kansas. First time we, we left Colorado, we went to Kansas. That was our first big quote-unquote tour. We played Lawrence, and Lawrence was kind of cool, a place called The Bottleneck. And then we went to Topeka. And uh, think about Topeka, the reason why it's such a weird place, I think, is because 600 Indians were massacred there and uh, back in the day. And I think that it, that probably hangs over Topeka a little bit. Um, but it was just not where we needed to be. And I remember we, we played our show, and there was a handful of people there. And we were a new band. and. Here we were, you know, playing bluegrass with drums and sort of Cajun and rock and doing our salmon thing, and nobody really got it because, you know, how weird was that? <laughs> and uh, this dude comes up after the show, he goes, you know, that kind of music, that might work okay where you come from in Colorado, but here in Topeka, we don't like it. Okay, so we never went back to, <laughs> like uh, to Topeka, actually. <laughs> No reason to go to Topeka. Uh, so, yeah. that Not exactly Metropolis. I don't think you're missing out on much. No, definitely not. And there's certainly others I could, I could choose from, but that's one that jumps out at me. So, All right, so, Andy Hall. Yeah. Oh, it was, okay. Well, shoot. I mean, since you mentioned the one in Germany, this was, it, it's not, it wasn't necessarily, it was one of those ones that you thought could be a nightmare, but ends up kind of being awesome, which was we had a gig in Germany at this church and the same night was this large anti-nazi rally going like festival day show going on and the promoters didn't want them to compete because even though nobody knew who we were we were like american band and so people were going to go to that show i guess and so they didn't want the two things to compete so they wedged us into this like anti-neo-nazi rally inside of a castle in germany and literally we were the headliner and every other band were these like insane and really good like punk metal bands so they're just going on they're stage diving they're going but when we go in there's fences and there's nazis outside like like pounding on these fences and like and you know our vans driving up and you see them out there and they're they're you know and you're waving like, you're sticking your arm out saying hi yeah no we were we were hiding and um <laughs> And so we, we were the headliners, so we play last. All these bands are just crushed it. They're stage diving. People are going bananas. And we get up there with our little plankety-plank, you know, banjos and dobros. The sound doesn't work. They don't know how to do our sound. Like, we can't get half the mics on. Most of the crowd leaves. So we just skip the PA, and we just walk down onto the cobblestone patio that we were on and just start to play acoustic. And the people that remained, their minds were blown. They had never experienced something like this, like an acoustic band playing with no PA, with no electricity, just jamming. And it ended up being an awesome time. And the people who stayed were like really appreciative and really cool. But and then as we were leaving, he said, the the guy said, you know, a few of us were going to walk back to the hotel. He said, don't don't walk, don't walk out there. We'll we'll give you a ride. It's not safe. So we got a ride back to the hotel, and that was. Nazi, did you say Nazi safe? Nazi safe? Nazi yeah, safe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not Nazi safe. Seth loves to make fun of the Nazis any chance he gets. I can't blame <laughs> you. I cannot blame you. <laughs> and on that note, Happy New Year.
Well, there you had the interview, but folks, the thing that's amazing, these musicians sitting there with their instruments, we got a little bit more than an interview, didn't we, Rob? Yes. I would have liked to, to play a few more, but they were nice to play anything at all, and we got two songs, and here they are.
for you. That's easy. Yeah. You guys yeah. familiar with that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow that. And um, what key do we play that in? A. A? Yeah. So it starts on the E? Yeah. You want to kick us off like you always do?
that's the way it was. What a nice little jam session. I was the private dancer. No, I actually was holding my phone up and... Yeah, I was making you... I was like, Rob, fucking record Yeah, this. backup audio and nice video. I still have that. Did you ever get you that? You never sent me the video. Then you sent me some like text or like, oh, here's some some slideshow or something. I don't know. You. Well, I want to talk about this new podcast, uh, Amigos. It's new to our Osiris podcast family, OsirisPod.com. Osiris. O-S. IRISpod.com. It's Mike Fenoya, very seasoned comedian. Uh, he also has a show on Sirius. He's a producer from Practical Jokers. He's a writer, right? For or is he? I think he's done some writing, but he's he's an on-air personality. He's very good on the mic, and you can hear it uh, in, in in his uh, shows. And the shows I've listened to the most are the Sam Cutler one, longtime associate of Grateful Dead, Sam Cutler, who actually was with the Rolling Stones until Altamont. He came to the U.S. for the Altamont Festival and stayed and then was intrinsic to the Grateful Dead going from regional phenomenon to international juggernaut. But it's a really interesting interview. He does have a few Seth moments, though, does Fenoya. Whoa, 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 what does that mean? Which is kind of funny because he's a seasoned, you know, he's been doing comedy and doing stuff all the time. But he seemed, it's this whole Grateful Dead thing, you know. So this guy was like so woven into their culture. That Fenoy almost almost sounds overexcited and a little intimidated at points, but it makes for a good listen. It's Wait, really hold on. good. It, I sound overexcited and intimidated. No, interrupting or someone starts to go in a different in an interesting direction, getting cut off. That's oh, what I, mean. I thought you were going to say because yeah. he was he a great quite, comedian. He wasn't as bad as you. He wasn't like making about himself constantly or anything. But um, <laughs> so I'll be uh, speaking of strings and soul. Yes. Who are you speaking of strings and soul? I just did that. You right. see, see what I did there? But anytime you say that, I want to go so bad. <laughs> I brought you back a water bottle. You're welcome. Yes, that was it's a, a water bottle. It's a hot water. It's an awesome little piece, dude. It's not your usual, you know, here's a junky t-shirt you'll be sick of in three minutes thing. This was a nice gift. Thank you. I also listened to the Amigos episode with Brando from... Um, blanking cashertrade.com. Why do I blank on that? Cashertrade.com, which is a way of getting people uh, exchanging tickets at face value or less. Um, very cool organization, kind of to undercutting the scalpers. And, you know, Curveball just got canceled. There were some interesting issues to talk about there. Did they talk about those? Yeah. Because I was curious about that, how that all Listen how to the episode. It's it. very interesting. And he talks about um, just some of these recent developments in Ticketmaster, you know, with the uh, oh, yeah. the bots and the favoritism to the scalpers and so forth. Yeah, that, that, was, that blipped on the news cycle and then just disappeared. Uh, I don't know why it disappeared so quickly, but, it's, you know. And... The other thing, you know, not to be a downer here, but um, no, I'm I'm going to say continue what you're saying. Sorry, I'm totally intrigued, and so are the listeners. What were you going to say? I just I'm just kind of annoyed because like the the anniversary of the Vegas shooting was a couple days ago, and there's just so little discussion about it. Right. I heard more about the anniversary of Petty's death than I did about the Vegas. I don't. I didn't hear a thing about the Vegas. And shooting. it just it just bothers me that we're just so like we just move past these things so easily and. I don't know. It's just I'm I'm bothered by it. So, it's an odd thing to be familiar. Shootings. Yeah. All right. Anyway, but so. it is a downer too. You were right about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was right. But anyways, welcome. <laughs> we're so glad to have Mike Fenoya in the series in the Osiris family. Very, very cool. It's 
gonna. I'm, I'm excited to see what he brings to the podcast network because he comes again. Like it's not just music related stuff. There's comedy from what he what he's bringing to the table here, and um, he has already shared a lot on the last conference call. He shared a lot with uh, the um, one of the nice things about the podcast network is we all get together on a conference call once a month, and people share have time to share some ideas and help each other out. And he brought some some good good stuff to the table. So thanks for that. Feels like being on a team. And we got good leaders. We got RJ and we got Tom. I'm very happy about it. Um, but uh, also, I just recently went up north. By the way, thank you, New Bedford Whaling Museum. Not only did they honor my father, the, the whaling and scrimshaw was like my dad's Grateful Dead. That's the best way to explain it to these to these listeners. Don't want to go on too long, but they surprised me. I guess my stepmother knew this, uh, and my sister knew this, but I didn't know they were they dedicated a whole wing. Whoa! No, his father passed away uh, uh, a little over a year ago. I'm sorry. And we talked about this in previous episodes and. But not enough. And he was a benefactor. Do you, and do you want to talk about it? Uh, this uh, we'll keep it short. But it's if you go to the New Bedford Whaling Museum in downtown New Bedford, Mass, which is a downtown that is a state park. I mean, I mean a, that's, excuse me, federal. What do you call a federal park? Um, a national park. National park. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> There's only like three of them in Massachusetts. Isn't that weird? Wouldn't you think there'd be more? There's not that. Massachusetts isn't that big. It isn't that old? When do we no, have... no, I said big. Not that big. Yes, it is. It goes all the way. It's like... Oh, well, I guess the Berkshires. Yeah. yeah. The Berkshires. Coachella. Coachella. Oh, God. At any rate, so they put a whole wing. Yes, but anyway, the point I'm getting to, and so go, go to the New Bedford Whaling Museum, folks, when you're on tour, when you're chasing some band, and you're down in the area, and you can see the Dr. Roderick H. Turner display wing which is uh, i was very honored very touched and it was a very cool little event they had and, and your father was a brain surgeon right no 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 hips hips and knees oh. mostly hips he was in the air force he did some work with these why do you think he was a brain surgeon because look at because me cause look know. at the big brain oh gosh yeah <laughs> all right yeah i've done some stupid stuff on the show lately so i can joke about that let's not point it out though I've been a little down on a couple a couple mistakes. Like this one, perhaps. Uh-oh. Didn't you... Wasn't this this the interview where something happened? Oh, no, no, there no, no. There was one thing I had wrong. No, no, no. Let, let's not talk about it. Yeah, there's one thing in the interview no, no, It wasn't wrong. this interview. Let's not talk oh, about talk. it. Was just a <laughs> biscuit-inspired name inaccuracy. Uh, anyway. Okay, but anyway, the point being that... So I had this trip planned, and they announced Neil Young... At the Capitol, which is right on the freaking way. So I got to see one of those shows. So Rob starts texting me like crazy. And then, I mean, like, friends of friends of so Rob's excited. are now texting me, asking me if I'm going to help Rob get a ticket. I'm like, no, you're in the music industry. You get him the ticket. And so I ended up getting them the ticket through. Uh, I through, paid, but through, I you know, no, paid. It was not a free show, but... Um, Really cool, though. You know, one of my former interns works over. Thank uh, you. And so, so Stephen, yeah. Thank you. It was so amazing. Although the next night, the Thursday had the set list that was more of a Rob Turner set list, had more new stuff and weird stuff. They even debuted, they did a Lucas song called Turn Off the News. First time that Neil Promise of the Real. Lucas Nelson is uh, the front man, Willie Nelson's son. He's the front man for Promise of the Real, who's the band that was backing Neil. And on Thursday, they played one of Lucas's songs. That was a first for, for Neil. So that was cool. But I went Wednesday. It was more of the old school show. They did good, like a, you would have loved Cortez. They did a great Cortez. They did, they did Fucking Up. They did. Um, oh, that was your first time at the Cap since it's It's my first time at the Cap since I think a moment Esky Martin and Wood show, like over 20 years ago. I've only been there like three times. But uh, it was great to be back. I think once for the biscuits. I don't know, whatever. But now, our closer. Last night. 
David Byrne. Here at the Tabernacle in Atlanta, Georgia. David the Tabernacle. Byrne. The Fox. The Fox. Oh, my I'm sorry. God, Rob. Well, my mind gets off on one thing and gets excited and forgets the Don't other. Don't break the chair now. I'm near oh, oh my such God. a great show. Oh, and the the opener, the tune yards. Yeah, the tune yards are great. It was one of those shows, too, where all of your... Like, you could not throw a ping pong ball in the air without it landing on someone you knew. And it, it was so. It was a show just filled... The Fox Theater filled is, with some of our closest actually friends. Does this. He'll bring ping pong balls to find people. Yeah, except for when I can't find them, the balls turn from white to blue. But anyway... Ooh, Robert Kwan had a bunch of us over, cooked us some nice food. Oh, the food was amazing. Oh, um, but it was just a wonderful night. But the music, he, David Byrne's band is so phenomenal. And the performance that they do, I mean, this is a real show. And it's it's just, it, everyone's been raving about it. And there's a reason why. Well, it has elements of Broadway. Yeah. yeah there's so synchronized, the, the, um, choreographed. The uh, musicians are in, in almost constant movement um, to kind of add tension to the song and kind of under underscore what's going on in the song. He, they, he rearranged a lot of the talking head stuff, you know, particularly uh, blind. And that was blind was the one that you were talking about with the silhouette that they yeah. were doing. And that just, if you haven't, if you haven't checked out anything about this tour, go, I mean, how could you not? It's, it's, it's all, it's all over the web. People are talking about it I mean, and he, it really is as good as, as everyone's saying. He comes out and does a cup here and lazy gets you all, Dialed in and intense, and then I Zimber Slippery People, just a dance fest. It's so, fun. yeah, that's the thing, too. Is like, it, it's like I was wondering because of the choreographed nature of it, like how much dancing you're going to do, and then right. really tore it. Just it, we all got we just all let loose. It's one of those shows where you have to kind of balance you, you want to watch it, but you want to dance, but you don't want to do too much of one or the other, you know. Mm-hmm. Because you want to be able to, I don't know. But Born Under Punches was amazing. And I didn't know we were getting the great curve. That was the second encore. Right. Oh. And that's the one that he brought the lady out from the tune yards, too, to sing. Well, that, I think that was this, the last one, the second oh, encore. Okay. That, that hell you, that, that with the say his name, say his name. Yeah, say his name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that, yeah. Well, folks, we appreciate you listening. Um, we hope you like this episode. Please, uh, Please review us on iTunes. Give us a nice review. And also, if if you like these hybrid episodes where we're interviewing members of different bands at the same time, please let us know. Please give us feedback so that we can use this feedback and go to the publicist and do more of this stuff in the future. Because, you know, we're lucky with the String Dusters and Salmon. There's a kismet. But it's hard to talk these musicians into doing stuff like this. And the more we do them, the better we'll get at them. And I think it makes for a very unique interview to have the, the musicians from the different acts. Don't you, Seth? I do. Seth just wants to be done with this. No, it's not that. I'm tired. And then I'm like, oh, should I tell everyone the story about how I flew to Chicago and... uh Sold nothing, but nah, I just, no, no, I'm no, not, no, no, no. So no. this is your auctioneering career. And so part of your payment is based on, because I was getting texts from Seth, there's no de- money in the room. There's no money in the room. So Dep- It depends on the gig. Some gigs, uh, it's a flat fee. And some gigs, I'll work on a percentage deal. And uh, this one, um, you know, I helped them with their silent auction and their live auction. So I still was able to. What kind of event? It was a food event. It was a. It's a. I'm just. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to say the name or anything like no, that. No, but it's food. But it's, it's a. It's a. What chef, It's a chef challenge, and then they have you know a lot of food samples and high, high so end booze. So what's being auctioned? So I was selling for the live auction. I did 
Uh, there was a trip to Sonoma, uh, where you would and, and Napa, where you'd go and you'd get this rental house and with a pool, and then you go see the wineries, all, you know, tours included, and then oh, a yeah. a chef comes to the house. It's a three bedroom house. A chef comes oh. and does a four course, five course meal with wine pairing for you all. Damn, I want to be rich. Right, I know. I want to be rich. It's awesome. Uh, there's there, and, and then also I was also selling um like you know a holiday ham and uh, there was a little bit of everything. I know, crazy, right? Holiday ham wasn't that your college nickname? <laughs> That's uh, no, uh, but yeah, there's no money in the room. Like people that were there, they were most of the people were on got there because they were comp. It was you know like the chefs were competing, so they gave away tickets to their friends, and a lot of people just wanted the free food and the free booze. And even though the items were great. You know, no one's calling up five of their friends saying we got a split on this, you know, and so I was up there and like there's a video of me auctioning six things and it's like, all right, so we're going to go to the next one now. I mean, there was crickets in the room, crickets in the room. It was it. But I, yeah. so a zero, zero dollars made on the live auction, although the silent I boosted them from where they normally make about five thousand. I got them up to seven. So, you know, I helped push it a little bit, but there was no advertisement, the placement on, on, like, no one knew how to register if they wanted to. So right. we had to walk around and talk to everyone. And, um, so it was a year, challenge, but the part, learn next well, year. But the, I guess, you know, the reason even to bring it up is you got to go and do these things. You got to, it's like a comedian. I love listening to comedians and how, how they talk <laughs> about you got to fail. You got to be yeah. able to, you got to go and kill. And some, and, and in order to kill, you have to be killed sometimes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's and part of the whole, it's humbling, but that's the wisdom of experience. Yeah. And, I, and, and it's also important to like, I'm kind of going through grief a little bit about it because even though I know it's not my fault, I performed well, there's nothing, it was nothing in my control that I could have changed to, uh, make the make you know the money happen. So, but still, but I do care. I, I care, and, 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 and but and it, t- it takes a little bit of, to to get through that. All right, before we end, you got to go another story because before David Byrne, ah, so the Colonel story. Dinner. I did. We did want to talk about it. So I wasn't there, but our friend Garv, who uh, if oh, you, this was Garv, yeah, okay. and who, Garv Maltra, who I ran into, and he said that I that that is the proper way to pronounce it. I don't have to go Garv. It's Garv Maltra. And he's a percussion player, uh, uh, and he owns and a restaurant owner and mm-hmm. a great person, amazing person. So he he and the colonel also were very very good friends. Say the name of his restaurant, Nectar. Uh, yeah. So um, he and the colonel were very good friends, and so he and his wife before the burn show were across the street from the Fox, and they overhear this couple talking about Colonel Bruce. So they're like, oh, I gotta go go and say say something. So they go over and they start talking to this couple. And sure enough, they were talking about Colonel Bruce. So now they're talking about Colonel Bruce together. And all of a sudden, again, it's like eight o'clock at night, seven thirty, across the street from the venue, in down in like Midtown Atlanta, like, and out of nowhere, they get stung by bees. Colonel at Bruce night in downtown Atlanta, bees right in across the Fox. Odd, very odd. Yeah. May the Colonel be with you all. And on that. Enjoy the rest. Oh, oh, can I just say one last thing? I had a little proud moment of Atlanta. Okay. When David said, we have for this tour partnered with Headcount. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that a lot of people cheered and he seemed surprised that people were familiar with Headcount? So it made me think that Atlanta, maybe more than most cities, is Headcount aware. Oh, we're very Headcount aware. Dude, back 
all the ten table- years or twelve years when it first moved to Atlanta, we were pushing headcount around yeah. at Music Midtown when it was back in its old location. All the tables we worked and the phone calls we've done, it's paid off. Oh people, man, people know about headcount. Do you I've remember when we did tables? You, you worked know, the- Bill Ector of the Almond Brothers World. Mm-hmm. I worked next to him uh, at Bushkill, Pennsylvania once. Yeah. You he also- got me the almond set list so I could know when Steve Kimlock was sitting in. Go ahead, sorry. No, that's all right. You also you were at my apart uh, my um, old office down in in uh, in Little Five and. Uh, Old Fourth Ward back, mm-hmm. in, and we did the phone call, bank calls, yes. forehead count from to our let people office. know right before the election to remind them. And yeah, it was in midterm that- elections of like again, I think like ten years ago or something. And that's where Megan Beasley and or Craig and Megan met. Well, I mean that that oh, didn't work out. Though. Everybody, everybody knows that. <laughs> I'm going to cut that part out. It went as well as my wedding. Uh, my uh, or my. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back next week with very similar situation. Actually, goodbye. <laughs> Way down where the tall pines grow Live my sweetheart of the mountain She's my little
string dusters, horseshoes, and hand grenades. Love them. What a night in Hotland. Thank you all. Woo!